Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 26. It's been great to be with you this weekend. Thank you so much for your hospitality and just kindness and encouragement to me uh, while I've been with you. And uh, I've been trying over the course of this weekend to show that uh, missions is not something uh, from one particular text or even from this or that text or even from a lot of texts in the Bible, that, but that missions that is going into all the nations, including this nation, and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is something from all over the Bible. Having said that, though, I do want to go to the key missions text in the entire scripture, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20, where the risen Lord Jesus Christ, after living his unbelievable life and rising from the dead after dying for sinners, Jesus commissions his followers to go into all the nations and win him followers, win him disciples, those who will learn from him. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, would you come this morning and come and help us? Lord, we are very weak. Lord, you tell us in John 15, 5, that without you we can do nothing. We can't listen to a sermon properly. We can't preach a sermon properly. We can't be helped even in the middle of a worship service without you explicitly giving us help by your Holy Spirit. So we're coming and asking you, Lord, to please help us. Lord, we pray that you set a guard over the door of my mouth that I might not sin against you. And we pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. Lord God, we plead with you that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you so that our hearts would burn within us as we hear your truth. And we pray for those whose hearts are stony and hard and even dead to your truth, that they would come alive as you shine on us this morning. Lord, we pray that hearts would unfold like flowers before you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by telling you what I hope that God will do through this sermon. Uh, right from the start, I want you to know what I think the application to this message ought to be. So the normal way of preaching a sermon is to explain what the passage means and then to explain how it applies. I want to flip that on its head, reverse the order this morning and explain to you what I think this sermon ought to do in our souls, how it ought to be applied, what I'm hoping God will do in our midst through this message, and then I hope very concretely to back it up with the scripture that's in front of us this morning, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. The first thing I am hoping that God might be pleased to do this morning is to, is to call a surprising number of you to leave Augusta and to, and to go to one of the thousands of places on earth where the name of Christ, the good news of Christ, has not been heard. Yesterday we were reminded by Bert that there are 7.2 billion people on the earth. And I say that slowly because I just feel like whenever I hear it, I can't accurately bring that in. What does it mean for there to be 7.2 billion individuals on the planet, but there are. And uh, we heard not only there are 7.2 billion individuals, but about 3 billion of those people, just under 3 billion of those people, live in what can be called unreached 
people groups. Now, a people group is a group that share a common culture and a common language to the point where you would need to adjust your language or adjust your culture to get the gospel to break into them. So, for example, in Canada, you have English-speaking Canada and you have French-speaking Canada, and they're in one nation, but they are two language and ethnically different people Groups. They're diverse in that way, and it takes different gospel ministry to spread into those two different groups. And there are thousands of unreached people groups. Three billion people live in these unreached people groups. Nine times the population of the United States of America live in a place where it is impossible or nearly impossible to even hear the name Jesus Christ, let alone to get someone to explain it to you in such a way that you could be saved. And it's my hope that a surprising number of the people here might be moved to uproot their lives to go to somewhere like a place over there where the name of Christ is not known. Maybe somewhere like the Barwa people of India, there are one million of the Barwa people and zero percent of them are evangelical Christians. That's like the population of the greater Augusta area and the population of the greater Savannah area and there's not a church in every corner. There's, there's not a church on any corner. There's not even, forget a church, there's not an, even an individual Christian to meet within that people. So as people live and die and get cancer and experience a guilty conscience, there's no one that could point them to any kind of hope beyond sickness, any kind of hope beyond guilt there's there's really it's really a true reality of what Ephesians chapter 2 calls without God and without hope in the world and it's my hope that a surprising number of the people here who are in the middle of trying to establish careers or live out careers or live out families or build uh, build homes and build lives that are good things to do that you might be like J.O. Frazier who was studying to be an engineer and in the early 1900s and God met him and convicted him of the tremendous need of the gospel among the unreached people and he dropped his engineering education, I think he finished his education, dropped the career and headed over to China where he ministered to the Lisu people for years without any fruit and then eventually seeing a massive church grow up out of the Lisu people. They're actually called the Singing Church because they adopted such a love for music. And then those Lisu people actually went on to reach out to other people groups in China. Wouldn't it be glorious if someone entering retirement or someone just leaving school or someone just leaving high school or even someone or many multiple people in, in the middle of a career were uprooted and sent somewhere else. Your, your God does this, right? He does interrupt occasionally. I don't know about you, but I, I've found I get very little success handing God an agenda that He needs to stick to for decades. And so it would be a glorious thing if, as we listen to this sermon, you may not, you know, I don't think that's me, but if there was at least a sense of, Lord, speak. Your servant listens. Lord, I'm, I'm holding all this with a loose hand. And anywhere, anytime, anything you want me to do, I'm open to your interruptions. And he may even speak into your heart in such a way that you, like Isaiah, are sitting there saying, Lord, here I am. Send me. My second application is for those who stay. And there will be, in all likelihood, most of you who stay. It is the normal pattern of the Christian life to get saved and stay put. Paul actually told the slaves in 1 Corinthians 7 who were being converted that they just needed to remain where they were, yet with God. He didn't say to all the Galatian Christians, you need to uproot and move to Ephesus. And all the Ephesian Christians, you need to uproot and go with me to Spain. There was no expectation in the New Testament that every Christian who got saved in a certain area would become a missionary and go somewhere else. If they had their hometowns would have wound up being unreached people groups again. And so it's a normal and a good thing 
when God saves a person and transforms the way they do their work, the way they love their family, the way they love their city. There's nothing second class or sinful or hard-hearted when a Christian chooses or is led by God into that lifestyle. God has always selected Pauls and Titus's and Timothy's and Peter's who take along a believing wife to go from where they were to somewhere where the gospel is not, but he's also left plenty of people in each place where he saves people to stay put in their hometown or wherever he places them. And that's good. But I would love to see the gospel applied to us this morning in such a way that you feel personally burdened by the needs of the nations so that your finances, your, what you're earning, becomes what's funding those who are going. So that your prayers become not just a token prayers for the missionaries, but really the burden of your heart is not just your kids' health, it's not just your wife's health, but it's actually how are these people in Madagascar doing? How are the churches thriving? That you are actually burdened personally with the success of the ministry overseas. J.O. Frazier, again, this missionary to China, uh, when he had been overseas in China, and remember, he wasn't Skyping back home with his support group. He wasn't sending prayer letters home that got read every week in church. There was very little contact between the foreign field and the home field, in J.O. Frazier's case in England. Nonetheless, J.O. Frazier from China, after he'd been there for a number of years, wrote his mother and a small band of prayer supporters a letter. And in this letter he said, I would that you would roll, I would roll onto you the whole burden of the ministry. He said, I'm not just asking for your prayer support, rather I'm rolling the entire weight of the Lisu people's fate onto you. And this small little band in England who were not getting regular updates, who were not regularly finding out what was happening in the Lisu people, were praying and praying and praying and praying until God worked a mighty work and transformed thousands upon thousands of lives among the Lisu. What, what a thing it would be if Berea knew all the names of the different places in Madagascar and knew the ins and the outs of how the churches were prospering there. I would love to see the application be that for those of you who stay, there is an adoption, a financial adoption. Let's not be too spiritual to talk about money. If you're going to send missionaries, they, they go with money. They like to eat. They're just into that. And so, and so <laughs> you've got to support them. And wouldn't it be great if God's people would say, like David, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing but I'll give sacrificially to send them. And I want to pray for them. And then on top of that, I'd kind of like to live like them while I'm here. I mean, what would you think if you sent all your money to support someone in Madagascar or Indonesia and you found out they were just living on your money and not sharing the gospel? It's a tragedy. And yet many Christians think very little of sending their money overseas to help other people share the gospel and then not sharing the gospel themselves where God has placed them. That's like an I, I gave at the office kind of mentality. Like I'm, I'm rolling on to someone else my responsibility to do evangelism. I paid them to do it and now I can just enjoy the good life here. Christ would have none of that for his people. He calls all of his people to go and make disciples. You may go to another nation, you may stay in this nation, but all of us are called to be part of this going and this sharing of the burden of making disciples. And so the application would be, I would love to see you financially support, prayerfully support, and participate in the same great commission that you're supporting others in overseas. And the last application I would make is this. It's the word here to those who are not yet Christians. Some of you may consider yourselves Christians and you may be like, you know, boy, I've always sort of believed in Jesus, but as I hang around this particular church or as I hear this particular preaching, I'm sensed that I don't know the reality and the power and the joy and the presence of the Holy Spirit that seems to characterize true Christianity. Or, or maybe you're here and you're just like, I don't believe Christianity and no, I don't have the joy or the Holy Spirit because I don't believe that there is a Holy Spirit. And my goal for you this morning would be that somewhere in the process of talking about Jesus' mission 
and who Jesus is, uh, you might catch a glimpse of His glory that compels belief, that, that really wins you to being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that I've started big, and by starting big, I probably deflated everyone in the room. Oh, great. Now I get to leave with the good guilt of knowing that I did not go overseas after this morning's sermon. Or I get to feel the way... I've heard, you've heard it said, if you want to make Christians feel guilty, you can talk about one of two things, evangelism or prayer, and, uh, and, and just sort of induce a cloud of guilt on the entire congregation, because everyone thinks they could share the gospel more and pray more. You know why you think that? Because you could. And so why start with this application that just sort of puts this daunting weight on everybody that I'm not sure I can ever rise. I'm not sure I could go overseas. I'm not sure I could share the gospel with my boss or my neighbor. I'm not sure I could really confront my father with this gospel you're talking about. Why throw that out of the story? Couldn't we ease it in? Start low. Strike fire. Retire. Something like that. Well, the reason I want to start with the application is to hold out the commission in front of you, but then to remind you that God can start where you are. He can start with you and work with you where you are. If you'll notice here in the text, it says here that Jesus was dealing with his 11 disciples. The 12th was Judas, and he was now gone because he'd abandoned the Lord. And he's speaking to these 11 disciples, or he's about to speak to these 11 disciples, but they are waiting for him in Galilee at a mountain to which he had directed them. If you look at verse 10, you'll notice that he gave the women, who were the first witnesses of the resurrection, that he gave them this commission. He said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And so these women went to the disciples, and they said, hey, go up north in Israel. Head up to a particular mountain. Jesus is so raised from the dead that he's making appointments and keeping them. Go up there and meet with him on the mountain. And here, these men are waiting for Jesus on the mountain. And when they see him, they have this particularly distinct reaction. They worship him. But some doubted. They weren't just all overwhelmed. This, this wasn't some amazing group of superheroes that Jesus Christ gave the Great Commission to. It wasn't some Delta Force. It wasn't some SEAL Team 6 team that Jesus came to and said, all right, guys, you're ready? Let's go. No, it was these group of worshipers and doubters who Jesus Christ gave the call to take the gospel into all the world too. He gave it to a very normal group of believers. He gave it to men and women like you and I. This word uh, doubted, that some of them doubted, is not like a Richard Dawkins angry atheist doubt where you know Jesus walks up and they're all like, yeah, right, you don't even exist. It's, 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 not, it's not that kind of doubt. Actually, this word for doubt that's used here is used only one other time in the New Testament. And the one other time in the New Testament that it's used is that time when Peter sees the Lord Jesus walking on the water. And Peter says to the Lord Jesus Christ, tell me to get out. Test my faith. Call me to something great. And Jesus says, yeah, get out of the, get out of the boat and walk on the water. And so Peter does it. But then Peter, who was sustained above the water by his looking to Christ begins to look at the waves and the circumstances around him more than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at circumstances over Christ, you start to sink. And Peter begins to sink in the water. And Jesus lifts him up and says, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Same word, doubt. The word means waver, hesitate. And it's essentially a condition that every single Christian I've ever met, at least, has, has been at at some point in time. And you, you believe? Help my unbelief. I know that's true. I'm just not really sure I'm ready to deal with all the implications of you being raised from the dead right now. And here, Jesus is speaking to people like 
Peter who are experiencing this kind of doubt. R.T. France says this kind of doubt denotes not intellectual doubt so much as a practical uncertainty. A being in two minds. It's, it's the kind of doubt that Moses has when God says, you should go speak to Pharaoh. And Moses is like, I can't go speak to Pharaoh. I can't speak publicly. And God says, I made your tongue. And Moses is like, I still can't go. <laughs> it's the kind of doubt that Gideon experiences when God says, here's what I'm going to do. And Gideon's like, can we lay a fleece out and see if you're really going to do it? It's the kind of doubt that we see in Peter when he's walking on the water. And then he falls back down. It's the same kind of doubt that Christians can often wrestle with on a daily basis where they know what's true. They're even convinced of what's true. But living it out and not hesitating and wavering in front of the full implications of it is so very hard. What's amazing here is that Jesus gives these doubters the Great Commission. He gives them a command that for 2,000 years has been spreading all over the planet. Here we are 2,000 years later and there are believers in Madagascar and there are believers in Indonesia and there are believers in Korea and Norway and Canada and the United States. There are believers all over the world and Jesus handed this message over to worshipers and doubters and ascended into the clouds and left them with it. And it worked. Because he's able to use people starting where they are. He never intended to give the Great Commission and then push you off and say, you go do it yourself. No, he knows that you're a worshiper or a doubter and he knows I need to be with you always, even to the end of the age, and I will. And so I'm saying to you this morning that I would love to see a surprising number of you leave Augusta, go overseas. I'd love to see all of you stay in Augusta, be as missions-minded as you would expect a missionary to be. And for even those of you who don't know the Lord, to trust in the Lord. And my hope that God can do this is He's able to start in very ordinary rooms with very ordinary people who just are simple worshipers. Lord Jesus, I can't be a missionary. I just worship you. I just think you're great, and that's it. Good, that's a good start. Let me send you overseas. Well, Lord, I doubt you. That's all right, too. I can convince you, and I can deepen your trust in me so that you can take my gospel anywhere I call you to be. And the Lord Jesus Christ gives these worshipers and doubters, four truths that I would point out to you this morning. It's been pointed out by many people that Jesus uses the word all four times in this passage. And He gives these four all-encompassing truths to strengthen and encourage these worshipers and doubters that He's going to send out on His great mission. He tells them that He has all authority in verse 18. Then he also says that he wants them to go therefore and make disciples of all nations in verse 19. And then in verse 20, they are to teach other people all that he has commanded and then he will be with them always, even to the end of the age. These four truths are able to take you wherever you are, worshiping or doubting or somewhere mixed in between and grow you and strengthen your faith so that you are able to go wherever the Lord Jesus calls you to be in the strength that He supplies for the advancement of His mission in the earth. The first thing the Lord Jesus Christ says is that He has all authority. So here's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in some ways got one last shot to talk to them before He ascends to the Father. There are other incidents, but this is climactic in Matthew. And He says... I'm going to tell them that I have all authority. Now, honestly, if I've been walking with Jesus Christ for three years at this point, I'm like, I think we did that like in our kindergarten year. Didn't we do the all authority lesson like really earlier? Remember Jesus, it was says in Matthew chapter 7, taught as one who had authority and not like the scribes and Pharisees. You remember that when Jesus was presented with a paralytic man who'd been lowered through the roof, 
Jesus Christ said that he had authority to forgive the man's sins. And in order to prove the authority to forgive the man's sins, he said that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So he showed that he had authority to heal the sick, forgive sins. He taught with authority. He cast out demons with authority. His whole life was one that exuded power and authority. And now here he is with worshipers and doubters trying to get them ready for his great commission. And he says, I want you to know I've got authority. Why are you telling me this? Because the Lord Jesus Christ was saying something different than he just was that same authoritative person they had always known. He was saying that though he had been the crown prince since the resurrection, he was now the enthroned king. Though he had always been royalty and always powerful, at the resurrection, he had been enthroned. Notice that this is authority. It's not something that's just part of his character. It's not just because he's God. It says, And when they saw him and worshipped him, some doubted. But Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And the Bible is plain that at the resurrection, God conferred an authority on the Lord Jesus Christ so that he could exert his rule over the whole face of the world. One of the clearest points, times this is said, is in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, it says that by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus became the begotten of God. He became the enthroned Son of God. Or maybe uh, easier would be Philippians chapter 2 where it says that He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name that is above every name. Now you say, wait a second, I thought He had that name. Didn't Mary give Him the name Jesus? No, the point is something new happened here. He was coronated. He was, he was enthroned and he was given the name that is above every name. He was given the right to rule and exert his rule over all nations. So that's the first point, that Jesus Christ has all authority over heaven and earth. Now here's why that's so critical. If you give yourself to sharing the gospel more with your boss more with your family, more with your friends, more with your coworkers, more with people from other languages, nations, countries, the powers of heaven and earth will be against you. And when I say the powers of heaven will be against you, I don't mean God will be against you. I mean it in the sense of Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against the demonic forces in the heavenly places. God sees demonic forces against his people as in the heavenly places. You will have all the forces of earth against you in that if they persecuted me, Jesus said, they will persecute you. And when you share the gospel, you will unleash the powers of hell and the anger of the earth against the Lord Jesus Christ against yourself. There will be times people get you get favor. It's clear in the gospel that sometimes we share the gospel, we get favor from men, but very often we get the hatred of the world, the accusations of the devil, the false teaching the devil wants to spread in the church. All of that comes, and when all of that comes, you wonder, what on earth am I doing here? Why am I living this life? Because the one with all authority called me to it. Because the one with all authority and who will triumph over every opposition and who's been given authority over every opposition, that one has called me into this. This is why when the church faced its first round of persecution in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4 and they were told no longer to preach in that name, they said, you judge whether it's better to obey God or man. We're going to obey the one with all the authority. Jesus Christ has all authority authority. 
The other thing is, because he has all authority, he wants to be worshipped in all nations. Now, nation here is not exactly every single country, USA, Canada, Ireland. It really probably means something more along the lines of every tribe and tongue and nation, all the different people groups of the world. Because he is the ruler of all the world, he wants praise from all the peoples of the world. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if God said, listen, I'm the ruler of all the earth, and I would just really like Madagascar to praise me. Or I would just like Israel, that little slice on the coast of the Mediterranean, to praise me. It would not be fitting of a king of the universe to have the praise of just a fraction of the universe, just a little, little bunch of people. He wants, rather, the whole earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. He wants to have a people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping him because that's the only thing fitting of the value of his cross and the value of his authority. He ought to be bowed to by every knee, and he wants to win a people to submit willingly to him. Now let me just ask you this. What is getting between you and Christ's authority? I mean, it's clear that Christ has all authority. It's clear that he wants his gospel shared in this nation. He wants you to share this gospel in this nation. He wants the gospel shared in other nations as well. What's getting in the way of your life submitting to that and actually sharing the gospel with a friend or a coworker or a boss or uprooting everything and sharing the gospel overseas? What's getting in the way of that? Sometimes it's something very small, like personality. Some people are like, I'm, I'm shy. I'm just really shy. And since I'm really shy, I just, you know, I hear, I hear what you're saying. I hear your Great Commission talk. That's nice. I hear the whole all-authority stuff. That's interesting, too. But it doesn't really apply to me because I'm shy. It's kind of like having a heart murmur when there's a draft. You know, I, I don't have to go into the army because I have a heart murmur. It's like the, the sovereign Lord of the universe is drafting all of his people into the Great Commission. But like, Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a shy person. I have a personality issue. I won't forget, quickly, a young lady who was sitting in my living room a number of years ago. Her name is Lynette Bergner. And she eventually went on to serve the Lord overseas in Indonesia as a single woman in the largest Muslim country in the world, in the most unreached island in the world. And she said, I realized that my shyness was going to get in the way of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I realized that my shyness was going to get in the way of what Christ was calling me to do, and so I realized I had to overcome my shyness. I like that. It's a lot better than having your shyness trump the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? And God used her in her weakness because He's able to use introverts and extroverts. He's, he's able to use people with clean-cut testimonies and with crazy testimonies. He's able to use people who just see Jesus and worship, and they, he's able to use people who see Jesus and they doubt a little bit. He's able to use them all and to convince them that He has the authority and that He wants to reach all nations. You know, I find it amazing how this, the simplest submission to Jesus he will honor. Sometimes we read about, we read about uh, a Hudson Taylor or a William Carey, and we want, to be, we want to be radical like these great missionaries. But then the problem is you're, you're too tired to be as radical as these great missionaries. And so you're like, will God really use me? And I have found that just the, the smallest submission the Lord will honor and encourage. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, it was Friday afternoon, about 3 o'clock, and Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, I'm very tired. We do a pastoral apprenticeship Friday morning at 6 a.m., so I'm off and up at 5 a.m. There's a lot of military people here, so you're not feeling any mercy for me. But I was tired, and, uh, and so it was, 3, it was 3 p.m., and I was basically so tired that a six-pack of Red Bulls would not have helped me out. And I just thought, I can't finish writing the sermon. I want to write, finish writing the sermon. It's Friday. I want it to be done. I want to go be with my family on Saturday. But I just thought, I can't finish. And I closed my computer and I decided I would go get my hair cut and go home. And on the way to going to get my hair cut, I thought, I don't know how this sermon is going to work out, but maybe if I was going to, maybe I could just like ask the person who cuts my hair 
what they think of this text. Now, I wasn't trying to ask them to be my Bible commentary. I had done a little study leading up to this. I was thinking maybe this will give me some fresh insight. Maybe we'll have a good conversation. Maybe it'll lead to getting to share the gospel with them. I was preaching on this bizarre text from uh, Deuteronomy about how you shouldn't listen to necromancers or those who communicate from the dead. So I thought it'd make for an interesting conversation. And, and this seemed like a really good idea, a natural way to share the gospel. You never thought it was a good idea? Okay, well, I thought it was a good idea until I pulled up to the place where I was going to get my hair cut and got out of the truck. And then, of course, the closer you get to sharing the gospel with someone, the less of a good idea it seems, doesn't it, right? It's always a good idea in your prayer time, and then you're actually there. And so I walk into this, uh, it's like Great Clips or something like that, and I didn't realize that I was wearing one of our church's welcome team shirts, which have our church logo on the back and then a big high <laughs> right there on your chest. And so I, I sit down to get my hair cut, and the lady across the aisle cutting someone else's hair looks at me and goes, Hi! <laughs> and I'm kind of like, what's your problem? Like, I mean, this is... <laughs> Weird. Hi. And then, oh, okay, I'm wearing the shirt. I get it. And so tell them that I'm at this church and this is our welcome team shirts and on and on and on. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this is probably a good opportunity to share the gospel. They just talked to me about my shirt, but I'm just like, I'm tired. I don't want to share the gospel right now. So a lady starts cutting my hair, and it only takes about seven minutes to cut my hair, so I have a very limited amount of time if it's going to happen. And I'm, I'm pretty much talked myself out of this whole reading scripture idea to the person. It seems like a worse idea all the time. And I'm actually falling asleep in the chair. But I'm kind of have this sense like, man, that seemed like a good idea. It really seemed like it was of the Lord. I'm not saying you have to share the gospel. Everyone ever cuts your hair. But it just, it just seemed like it was a good idea. It seemed like it was of the Lord. And now I've talked myself out of it. And I'm kind of discouraged. I'm falling asleep. So I managed to get this out to the Lord. Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing. I'm yours. If you want to open up some door for me to share the gospel, I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing to submit to the one who has all authority. And so she says to me, so do you have church tonight? I don't know why she asked. Oh, the shirt again. No, no church tonight. Just got the shirts in today. No, no church tonight. Just got the shirts in Actually, I'm just going home. I have been having a hard time figuring out what to preach on. I'm having trouble with the text I'm reading. She's like, will you read it to me? <laughs> so I'm reading this woman a chapter about necromancers. And, and she's like, what's that? And I'm like, oh, I mean, we were into whether her kids were going to heaven and whether hell was real, about how Jesus saves. We were into it so fast. Actually, the next morning, I got such a good opportunity to share the gospel that I thought, I'll take all my boys to get a haircut this morning too. And so we went back and got to talk to her more. And it is amazing how just the simplest submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, He will own, He'll take doubters and worshipers and turn them into evangelists. If they'll just submit to His authority where He calls them to share the gospel. Not because we're so awesome or so powerful, but because He is so worthy and so sovereign over our every efforts. Not only are we to have the gospel shared, not only are we to be Christ's messengers because He has all authority and because He wants us to go to all nations, but He also tells us that He wants us to teach all that He commands. Now this is one of the things that confuses me greatly about missions, is very often on the mission field, overseas and here at home, people get the bright idea that if we're going to really succeed in our mission, we need to water down some of the commands. So I've uh, had exposure to many missionaries who have been taught or have actually practiced this idea that when someone in, say, a Muslim background community or a Hindu background community gets saved, you shouldn't really tell them to get baptized. You shouldn't tell them to get baptized because if you baptize them, that will separate them from their Muslim community, that will separate them from their Hinduism, that will label them with the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there will be a distance between them and their relatives. Now, I'm all about people staying close to their relatives and trying to share the gospel with them, no matter what background they've come to. But this idea of getting rid of baptism 
or downplaying baptism or hiding baptism because baptism will create an offense or because baptism will separate them off from the people they're trying to win. Basically, the idea is this. We want to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so what we need to do is tone down some of the things Jesus said to get them to Jesus. And that's simply poor logic. It's logic that really diminishes the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's not just something that happens overseas. It's something that happens here at home. You know, there's clear passages in the Bible about modesty, about the implications of Christ's lordship for how you dress and whether or not you show your body off in a sexual way. But we look at those things and we're like, well, if we preach that stuff, we're going to sound like a bunch of fundamentalists. And if we're fundamentalists, then we can't be hipster missional people and then nothing will work. But as soon as you've got this idea that hiding one of Christ's commands is good as a good idea to get people to Christ, you're really missing out on who the main event is. It's Him. And He knows how to commend His gospel. He knows that it is important that in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, we actually talk about the call to come out of adultery to come out of homosexuality, to come out of patterns in life where men are passive and women are rebellious, but rather call people into patterns where husbands are servant leaders and women are submitting to them as Christ submits to the church. Beloved, none of Christ's commands are bad for evangelism. None of Christ's commission is bad for the commission. He wants us to put him on display and we want to be like Paul who said, I know that I did not hold back anything that was profitable for you. Therefore, your blood is not on my hands. We want to be like Paul when he talked to Titus and he said, you are to command these things. You are to rebuke. You are to charge them with all authority and let no one disregard you. It is a false humility to water down the commands of Christ for the sake of commending Christ. The one with all authority who wants all nations is the same one who told us to teach all the commands. And so they should all be taught clearly and openly, winsomely and joyfully. Finally, he makes this promise to us. That if we go out into our neighborhoods and our communities, and as we go out into all the world, he will go with you and he will stick with us, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. This is what makes the Great Commission possible. Is that someone more powerful than you, someone more committed than you, someone more gracious than you, will walk with you and empower you through every step of your path. He will go with you always even to the end of the age. And he'll, he'll always stay by you. Remember Paul, when he was in prison, he said that everyone abandoned him. Nonetheless, the Lord stood by me. He knew the presence of Christ at all points, and that's what made him able to go wherever Christ called him to be. And so let me give an encouragement from that point to those who are considering going overseas. An encouragement from that point to those who are pretty sure they're going to stay and an encouragement from that point to those who don't yet know the Lord. To those of you who might be saying, okay, maybe, Lord, I'll at least pray. Lord, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'm at least open to the possibility that you may want to uproot what I'm doing now and take me overseas to share your gospel. If that's you, I would give you an encouragement from the life of John Patton. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides. If you're looking for the New Hebrides on a map, you won't find it because they've renamed it Vanuatu. And even then you'll find it hard to find it on a map because it's little dots in the middle of the South Pacific. And in the days of John Patton, the islands of Vanuatu or the New Hebrides were cannibal-filled islands. And this Scotsman, this dignified Scotsman with a beard like Grizzly Adams, John Patton set sail from his beloved Scotland 
and he went to the New Hebrides to share the gospel. He took his young wife with him. And while they were overseas, she bore him a child. And then the fevers that were so rampant on those islands claimed her life and the life of his child. And he had to bury them on the island, I believe the island of Anaitium. And he had to stand guard over the burial site because he was on a cannibal island. He had to guard his wife's remains against being eaten. And he said, if it wasn't for the presence of Jesus, I'd have gone mad. But he didn't go mad. And he didn't go mad because the Lord was with him. Because he had a treasure that went beyond wife and child. He had the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was one time in uh, John Patton's uh, biography, There's one, the reason I went blank is because I'm tempted to make a little aside and I'm going to do it really quickly. Um, there's a lot of engaging entertainment in the world. And there can be a sense of like, how can we ever get Christians interested in something better and more wholesome than all the wildest entertainment that's out there? And I would say to you, missionary biographies. They're wild. I mean... They just make the Marvel comic movies look like paltry stuff. Just amazing movements of God in weak men and women. Okay, aside done. So, John Patton is on the island, and at one point in time, one of the natives pulls out a rifle and aims it at his head while he's out working in his garden and around his, his house. And Patton says he worked the whole day outside with the guy tracing him with the gun the entire time. That's like a, that's a bad day. There's a cannibal with a gun pointing it at my head and I'm trying to just garden in my flower bed on a cannibalistic island. And he said, the presence of the Lord was very near and sweet to me that day. You bet it was. The Lord stood by him. You will not go anywhere so dark that God will not go with you. People may forget you. You may miss out on all your parents' birthdays and all your family celebrations. You may miss out on so many things, but the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ will not be one of them. He will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now let's say you're the kind of person who's sitting I hear that, that's glorious, I want to pray for those people, but I'm not one of those people. I'm staying put, I want to witness more to my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers, my boss, I, I want to be more involved in that. Let me give you one encouragement about Jesus being with you always even in the mission he's given you. Look at Acts chapter 11, if you will. Acts chapter 11. And it says in Acts chapter 11, a little bit of the context, verse 19. In Acts chapter 11, what's happened is, is God did a really weird persecution thing in Acts chapter 8. What he did in Acts chapter 8 is that the church endured persecution and all the leaders stayed in Jerusalem and all the followers went out into all the highways and byways and the cities outside of Jerusalem. So all your preachers, all your guys who were supposed to be bold proclaimers and stand up in the temple and preach and get in trouble, all those guys stayed in Jerusalem and all the people who are following them, the lay people, the average Christian, if you will, those people were scattered all over the area around Jerusalem. Well, what did they do? Well, they found a small hole and they tucked themselves into it until a pastor came. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered, and remember the, those who were scattered is everybody but the apostles. You can verify that this afternoon by looking at Acts 8, 1 through 6. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, and Cyprus, and Antioch, they're a long way from Jerusalem, 
speaking the word to no one except Jews. So already they're speaking the word, but just to Jews, just to people within their same people group. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. They said, Let, let's, let's push the gospel into another culture. Let's talk to someone else in a different people group, different cultural background. They spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus and, I love this verse, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Here's a lay movement. No preachers involved. They're all sidelined in Jerusalem. Crossing cultures into a different culture and preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And God just doesn't say, that's nice. We'll wait for a preacher to get here for something real to happen. No, God places His hand on them and owns what they're doing and saves people across culturally through their ministry. God would love to do that with every single child of His in this room. To place His hand upon you and to be with you always, empowering you to witness for Him even to the end of the age. Finally, if you're here and you don't know Christ, the Bible describes the condition you're in as without God and without hope in the world. And I was there for so many years. Without God and without hope in the world. And the thing is that you need to understand that what He has sent Jesus to do is to reconcile you to God. To die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And if you believe in Him, you will be with God and with hope in the world because He will take away all your sins and reconcile you to Himself. But not only that, not only will He reconcile you and forgive you, but He will take you onto His team and commission you to be part of His mission to actually go and make other disciples. And He will walk with you all the days of your life. And the loneliness and the separation and the pain of being alienated from God because of your sin will be over. And the commissioning and the fellowship and the company of the Lord Jesus Christ will be yours. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would empower us to take your gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray you would raise up a surprising number of people to leave Augusta and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We plead with you, Lord God, that you would commission everyone here to be more bold in evangelism, no matter how weak they are. And Lord God, that you would take those who are alienated from you and you would walk with them all the days of their life as you extend to them the forgiveness of their sins while they repent and believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.